There's a phenomenon amongst the younger set out there called main character syndrome. I want to talk about that from a biblical worldview. Plus, I just have some reaction to the Dave Chappelle comedy special that's gotten so much attention. We'll do that and more on this week's Corey True Act Show. Smarter, deeper, and better talk. That's what we try to do here on the Corey Truax Show. We will do that today about this Dave Chappelle comedy special, this main character energy thing happening amongst your, well, maybe amongst you, because some of you are younger, but I was going to say your kids, grandkids, some of the youngsters in your church. I also listened to a debate recently I want to tell you about that has something to do with economics, surely, but as we always do, I always want to go one step deeper. And then another thing I want to get to today, just as a matter of preview, is there is some discussion to be had around our social media consumption as this Facebook quote whistleblower, she's not that, but as that came around to Congress and we were discussing social media and potential regulation thereof, think there's some things we need to think through there and have well-developed positions. So we'll do that and more on this week's Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm glad you're here. Amongst many other things, I get to serve as the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets at 1030 on Sunday mornings, and you're invited. In terms of location, I don't know where right now. Uh, the, the the road that connects like our driveway, basically, which is a very long driveway. So we're, we're right on 123 in Greenville, but to get from 123 to our building is a fairly long driveway. And this recent spout of four days of rain, five days of rain straight, washed away our road. It's, well, a portion of it. It's just gone. So, by road. And so we're going to have to do something about that. In the meantime, I know that we're meeting, at least for this week, at uh, Heritage uh, Heritage Baptist or Heritage Bible. Can't remember the name. Which one? Uh, but great folks there. Very generous. Uh, so you can find Beachwood. Just look for us on the, uh, on the, on the Facebooks and you can see where we're meeting. Here's where I'd like to start. I love stand-up comedy. I've mentioned it many times on the show before. I'm the guy who has Pandora channels. I still use Pandora, by the way. For comedy, not for music, like most of you will use your uh, your streaming sites. I I, th- I think of it uh, both as a genre of, of entertainment. I like to laugh much more than I like to do the other forms of entertainment, like folks that like horror, horror as a genre to entertain, or even action entertainment, uh, like action movies. I'm a fan of comedy. There's also, for me, the artistic nature. I think it might be the hardest thing to perform because it is just you and your material. So you're not an actor saying someone else's words. You're not using the the energy or working off someone else like you would in a play or uh, in a band even. It's just you and your stuff in front of a room and let's see how you do. So there's an artistic piece that I love, but it's also because of this. I'm a freedom guy. I'm a maximum freedom guy. And when it comes to the freedom of speech in the Western hemisphere, in Western civilization, comedy is often where the fringe of freedom of speech lives. Comedy has historically tested the limits of any given culture. And in our culture, it's, it's done quite well. You think of George Carlin back in the day um, and the seven words you can't say on radio. All the way until today, it is usually a comedian who will just come right up against the... The, the end of where of a any given society says, hey, you can't say that. And a comedian will say, watch me. Yeah, I will. And I love that about comedy. It's that the bastion of freedom of speech. And here recently, in that 
Well, actually, one more, illustri- one more illustration on this. So it is, it's fun for me, it's an art for me, it's the freedom of speech for me, but it's, it's also been a tool of social commentary. I'm not a fan of political comedy, but of social commentary, there's a lot of good here. I, I think back specifically to, to what I, I know is not technically called a comedy, it's called a satire. But Jonathan Swift and A Modest Proposal is a very funny satire. It's, it's skewering, making fun of the powerful folks at the time. So he's making fun of the, the British royals, those in charge, and how they basically think of the other members of the British Isles, the Scots, the Irish, as nothing and nobodies. Because if you don't remember this from high school or college literature, his satire is that the, that the people are, are hungry, there's poverty, there's, a, there's famine, and so his proposal is, we'll eat the babies. You know, they're just Irish and Scottish babies. Who cares? And that's how he was making fun of the the Brits. Now, we hear that, and you can tell that would be right up on the end of where you're uncomfortable now. Oh, I don't know if, I don't know if you should say that. But that's in part the power of comedy, in part the point of comedy, that it, it pushes you, makes you uncomfortable to have to think more deeply. So, now... In our cultural context, we have all kinds of great comedians and distribution channels are endless. Netflix had a contract with Dave Chappelle to do either two or three different uh, specials. And I, this is the final of the, of the deal. It just came out on Netflix. I watched it almost immediately because Chappelle really is one of the greats. He's one of the, the best to ever hold a mic, stand on the stage and do it. He's up there with Seinfeld and Cosby, all those guys. And I knew he would take some heat for what he said, and you've probably seen it. You've, and I want to do what I typically do, is, is go a step deeper than everybody else. But before we get into the, uh, the meaning of it all, because I think we need to find one here from a biblical worldview, I have one more thing I want to do, which is play for you at least one of the jokes. This is largely what got him in trouble, is he, he doesn't mind going after transgender people. So I'm going to play for you one of the jokes in that genre. I have lots of commentary on it as we go. Uh, but I need to give you some context. He opens this joke by saying he's come to negotiate the release of the baby from the LGBTQIA folks, which, by the way, now starts with two S, two spirit. So the two S LGBTQIA plus. He's come to negotiate for his release because apparently this rapper called the baby, a grown man called the baby, said some nasty things about gay folks, and then uh, they try to ruin his career like they always do. Um, try to ruin everything, try to ruin his life. And so here is, that's the setup for this joke from Dave Chappelle about the baby. We'll come back and talk about it. This is Dave Chappelle. A lot of the LBGTQ community doesn't know the baby's history. He's a wild guy. He once shot a <laughs> and killed him in Walmart. Oh, this is true. Google it. The baby shot and killed a in Walmart in North Carolina. Nothing bad happened to his career. (laughs) Do you see where I'm going with this? (laughs) In our country, you can shoot and kill a but you better not hurt a gay person's feelings. Oh, that is funny and powerful because we all know it's so true. One of the criticisms Chappelle has gotten over the years when he has made fun of the 2SLGBTQIA plus group is that he, quote, punches down. 
Punching down is the idea of making fun of a group weaker than you. And so you don't want to be a bully, right? Bullies pick on those lower than them. And he was accused of that in this special, that he's punching down. He closed off the special by making the argument that that LGBTQIA people need to stop punching down to black comedians. And, and at that point, you're getting into inter- intersectionality and identity politics and all that stuff. But he's making one clear point here and using baby as an illustration. You can literally shoot and kill somebody, and your career well, might take a setback, but you can, have, you can still have a career. But if you hurt the feelings of the alphabet mob, you are done. We will destroy you. In which case, there is no punching down at an LGBTQIA community. I'm not just going to say I would argue. Let me say it this way. It is abundantly clear who the most powerful force in the United States is. What we used to call various sexual deviancies and what now will get called various sexual preferences or lifestyles, this is the most powerful group in the country. We have an entire, an entire month, Pride Month in June, where every company and corporation does something to celebrate it and recognize it. And sometimes it almost sounded like, a, almost feeling like it's a hostage situation. Where it's, are you, are, you guys, are you guys happy? Are you guys uh, satisfied with the party that we threw and all the stuff that we put on our cups and we put on our commercials and then we put it on the bags too? Did you see? Did you see? Did you see? Did you see how much we love you and how much pride we have? Because they are terrified of the alphabet mob coming after them. So, with that being a reality... You know what? One more illustration on this. I, I once had someone argue against me on this and say, that's not true. This is the most marginalized community in the country. Huh. Try this. Walk into work on Monday and have two either negative comments or you can just do jokes at someone's expense. Tell a joke about a white, middle-aged evangelical. Make a Christian joke, an anti-Christian joke. You know what you're going to get? You're going to get some laughs. Now, make an anti-gay joke. Do it. I, oh. can, you, can you already feel how tense that would get and how you'd lose your job and your livelihood? You can tell, I can't remember what author said this, um, you can tell who the really powerful people are in a culture by who you're not allowed to make fun of. You know, it used to be the kings and queens and all the the fiefdoms around the world. You cannot speak ill of the crown because you'll be destroyed. We're not any different now. The crown is just different. Now the crown is sexual identity and personal identity. But really the, the crown, the idol of the American culture, this is where we get deeper, the crown of the American culture is self-identity. Who I think I am is the most important thing about me. And if you don't affirm the things I think, get that, get that, oh, very important. If you, the people around me, don't affirm the things I think about me, you are attacking me. You're doing violence to me because the only, the most important thing are the thoughts I think about myself. And so this is a good moment in the Chappelle special to recognize, all right, the culture I'm living in is one where the idol, above all idols, is self-worship. This is in part why it's it's so demonic. Our first enemy in the garden, his, his first sin 
being cast from heaven is, is self-worship, self-aggrandizement. And now the children of darkness follow after the father of darkness into self-worship. And then the final thing to recognize, it's not something to get mad about. Listen to me, don't get angry. Something to recognize. The cultural power is secular progressive leftism. It is sexual libertinism as a good unto itself. That's where the power resides. And if you are of a, an opposite worldview, you are actually the marginalized. No one will recognize that because there's in this culture, there's also a love for victimhood. What, needing to be the victim is a, it's, it's powerful. And so they're, in a secular progressive leftist world, they're unwilling to recognize that the actual weak, the actual marginalized, are those who disagree with them. But it's important to at least pick up those two things from the Ch Chappelle special. We live in the culture of self-aggrandizement and self-actualization being the core most important thing. So we, from the biblical worldview, then respond to that, knowing that we're going to talk about this more in the second segment with this phenomenon amongst young people called the main character energy, that we say there's so much better, there's so much, something so much bigger than just living for yourself. Your attractions, your desires, your your unctions, your feelings aren't the core of who you are. There's a better identity than all those things. And if you didn't realize it already, it's just good to recognize we are the marginalized. The culture has not fully accepted that, but that is the reality. When we come back, I do want to talk to you about this phenomenon amongst the ticker talkers out there primarily and a little bit on Instagram, some other uh, social media, amongst young people saying... Embrace being the main character of your life. I think there's some things we need to critique there. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just look for me, Corey Truax. I am quite easy to find. I think what I have next for you fits well into the theme we just came out of. This, this one of the discussions in terms of the response on uh, Dave Chappelle is uh, understanding the culture has self-actualization, self-identity as a core value to being human, just ha having affirmation of the self. I found another example of this in the culture, and so it's something that we should continue to explore. We should recognize... All the ways in which the culture is saying, you have to be the center of everything. And that's saying it to you, but it's also saying it to everybody else. And look at the consequences of a culture constantly saying, you are the purpose of your life, your happiness, and your fulfillment. Let me give you the details. I won't read the entire thing. It's quite long. But from the New Yorker magazine from just a couple months ago. So uh, typically, I excuse me, this is June 23rd, so... I guess it was summertime. This is about right for me. This is about the time I find out about a trend. Just a few months after everybody else, because that's just part of aging. Here's the New Yorker story. Last winter, Britta Grace Thorpe was in bed at her parents' home in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. In the depths of a late-night TikTok binge, when one video broke the reverie, soft harp sounds played, and then a female voice began a gentle monologue. You have to start romanticizing your life. 
you have to start thinking of yourself as the main character. Because if you don't, life will pass you by. That's the end of the quote from the video this woman saw. A couple of paragraphs down in the New Yorker article, you'll find her reaction. She says, I realize you just must change your life. It was a wake-up call, Thorpe said, who is 23 years old. Adding, quote, everything made sense in that moment. And I was like, wow, I'm doing it wrong. I'm living my life incorrectly. And it tells her story and several others. She moves to Philadelphia and starts a different kind of different kind of job. She even has now uh, an organization called Main Character Energy. And I've seen that video on TikTok, by the way. I've seen, so shouldn't say that. That sound, that script um, of the woman saying, you have to start romanticizing your life. You have to start thinking of yourself as the main character. I've seen that on lots of TikTok videos. It is a sound that other people are using. And so there's a, a cultural moment where there's something resonating here with people. And so here we sit, biblical worldview. We know the, the message of life, the message of liberty, the message of, uh, of actual liberty, not even, not even like the American version, actual liberty from, from ourselves, from our nature. We know what's good for people. And now here's a voice, here's a gospel, here's a good news out there in the culture, and it says, for self-actualization, what you need to do is you need to romanticize your life, and you have to start thinking of yourself as the main character. I think about that in context on that TikTok world and Instagram world as well. There's a very popular song right now in that world uh, that goes, uh, you have... You have to, oh, so, well, that's it. One day, you'll leave this world behind, so live a life you will remember. And there are always accompanying that song in social media the most epic of, of videos, people in the most epic areas of the, of the world, hiking on incredible trips in incredible cities, having the times of their life. You, one day you'll leave this world behind. You, you better live a life you will remember. And that apparently means going on adventures. It means going to places not everybody has been. I guess that's super sad for the vast, vast billions of people on the globe in poverty who will not have lived a life they will remember because they didn't get to go on all that, that cool stuff. So here is the gospel of the moment. Be the main character in your life. Everything else should revolve around you, because if you are the main character, who is everyone else? Who's your spouse? Who are your kids? Your friends, your coworkers? Everybody is only who they are in, the, in their relationship to you. So consider the liberty that does give you. You're the main character. I mean, we know about the main characters, that you always have to win. So if someone is making you unhappy, what do you do? You can just dump them, toss them. If a role you're supposed to play, a role that you have taken on or were born into, daughter, uh, well, I was going to say born in, that's probably the only one you're born into is daughter or son, but you have some responsibility as mother or father or spouse. You have a responsibility to your employer by showing up to work, to pay your bills. Well, if any of those things aren't fulfilling to you, you're the main character. You have to be fulfilled. This is, of course, a destructive way to live. But not just destructive. I think that's only mentioning the consequences. And consequentialism is not the main 
It's not the primary method of measuring whether or not something is good. Sure, it will make you miserable. It will make you delusional to think of yourself as the main character of history, the main character of life. I thought we used to call that narcissism. And yet, the consequences are true. You'll be miserable. I mean, consider what it, how heavy it must be to feel like the world revolves around you. To feel like your behavior, the outcomes in your life, it, it's not, doesn't just affect you because you are the main character, because you're Luke Skywalker or Harry Potter, because you are Katniss Everdeen. That was that one from Hunger Games. Because you are the main character, everything's riding on you. The people that you say you do love that are counting on you, everything rides on you because you're the main character. So you've got you to gotta win. You've got to have what you want. What a heavy weight to carry. So you have a gospel being preached in the culture that says, be the main character. And we can say right back, oh, that, that sounds like a lot to carry. I have a better story. I have a better gospel. I have better news than everything is riding on this life of yours. I think back to that actual script in the video. You have to start romanticizing your life. Where my biblical worldview would say back, you better not. You better live in objective reality. You better live in the real world. Your life's not a movie. It's not a novel. You're not a hero. You're not the protagonist. I'm not. Life's real. It's got its hard parts and it's got its, it's, it's, got its highs and lows. Life has its requirements. You know, you, what you never see in movies and novels is someone just pay their mortgage or the rent. You don't see them just grocery shopping and doing the mundane things of life, reading the bedtime story, going on the date night. You, you don't see those, but you know what that actually is? That's life. That's the stuff that just makes life up. Life really isn't all the adventures. As much as I love them, as much as you love them, life is made up of all those other times. Don't romanticize your life. Grab the one you have by the throat and dominate it. It's your life. It's the one God gave you. And that means, what? not romanticizing your life, it's looking yourself in the face and knowing, this is what I'm capable, capable of. This is my potential in career. This is my potential in a marriage. This is my potential as a parent. And I want to reach the fullness of that. This is the potential of, a, as a Jesus follower, what I can do. I want to reach the potential of the fullness of that. This is the potential I do have to affect others around me in positive ways and to forward the kingdom of God on this earth. And that's how I'm going to look at the world. What is real? What is possible? I'm not going to romanticize it and then go after it with all that I've got and being realistic, not romanticizing. You know, you don't have to, not you just don't have to, you don't think of yourself as the main character. You shouldn't think of yourself as the main character. Not just because, again, it's not practical and you'll be miserable, but because it's you're technically wrong. You're not. All of us orbit around someone else. All of us are who we are in relation to the, the Messiah, Jesus. Instead of everyone else being who they are in relation to us, we are really who we are only in our relationship to how we have reacted to God made flesh and who dwelt among us. It actually should be a relief that you're not the point of your life. Because if you come up short in some kind of worldly standard on relationships or parenting or career or money, you're not the point of your life. 
the trophies and the accolades and the reputation, that wasn't the point. If you actually spend your life making much of someone else and your faithfulness to following him, oh, what a, what a relief that I don't have to make my whole life about me. You're actually invited into something much better. Instead of being the main character and everything riding on you and your very limited resources, limited talent, limited intellect, my limited resources, my limited talent, my limited intellect, instead of being invited into a world where everything's riding on you and you're the main character, you've actually been invited into an adventure. I think about the Christian faith this way. Because it is. Here we are, this global movement, a couple billion people. Only 2,000 years ago, we were a few hundred people. We are here counterculturaling, be, being counterculture to the communist Chinese, the dictatorial North Koreans, the secular progressive left in the West, the, the Muslim aggression in the, in the Middle East. We are the force against all of it. The force against human trafficking and abortion and exploitation and injustice. Hey, listen, you don't have to be the main character. You're invited into something so much better. The true main character is undefeated. And he's just invited you along into the adventure of the conquering kingdom. Just compare those options. You can be this you can be the main character. And the adventure that you'll get to go on, you get to go on some trips and earn some money and chase after this happiness for these 80 years or you've been inviting been invited into a story that's been going on now for thousands of years and will go on for all of eternity. Or you can play your part with no chance of ever losing. There is apparently a main character energy going about this age. And we have a better gospel to tell to everybody that thinks they're the main character. That we can say, no, you actually don't have to carry that burden. You can let go of your main characterism and follow after the true main character of all of history. His name is Jesus. And it's quite the adventure if instead of being the main character of your own story, if you will play the exact part that he has given you, in his. All right, here's the transition I want to hit on that. This main character energy, this milieu in the culture, is primarily happening out there on social media. And that's the other thing I want to do in this segment. I'm sure you were following along the social media discussions happening in Congress, that there was a, quote, whistleblower who told us a bunch of stuff that we all already knew. And she comes out and says... Instagram is bad for women's body image and young girls' body image, and Facebook even knows about it. And we all went, uh, yeah. Have you seen the girls on Instagram? Like, it's obviously quite fake, but yeah. Most women are going to look at the women who make, a, who make a name for themselves on Instagram by literally just being pretty. That's their entire thing. They don't sing. Most of them don't dance well. They don't do anything. They have no talent. They're just physically appealing and so people send them clothes to wear to put on models makeup to put on some hair extensions to put in 
and they get to have a job just for being pretty for the few years that they'll be pretty on the internet. Yeah, that's going to be uh, bad for women's body image. And she she said it as if it was a revelation. But then even uh, her other uh, alleging of algorithms that the algorithm the algorithm rewards engagement. So as people engage with content, that content appears in other people's feeds, which just feeds back into the loop of in- engagement equals more exposure. And the things that people react to, the things that people engage with on the internet are things that are largely going to make people upset or angry. It's not the stuff that's uplifting. And so they have the hearing, and you'll find that it was Republicans and Democrats saying they wanted to launch some kind of regulation on social media companies. Now, you might find some... uh, You might be simpatico. You might find some sympathy in the idea of regulating these companies. I got that. Again, a lot of folks on the right have sounded like that. But I do have some words of caution and then maybe an idea. Number one, never forget there is an agenda here. Silicon Valley is just full of a bunch of leftists. For, for them to be wanting action from the government on anything, it's because it will in some way benefit a left-wing cause. That's 100% of the time the case. Facebook in particular has been a bugaboo of the left in large part because conservative content and a lot of Christian content has done well there that hasn't done as well on other social media outfits like Google's YouTube or even other Facebook properties like like Instagram. And so they've had it as they have a natural desire to get some control of it. Remember that's a, a core fundamental value of leftism is control. They're looking for control of things. Actually that reminds me of a very funny story. Uh, ladies listening, this is somewhat an untoward joke. I don't think I'm out of bounds here, uh, but just in case you easily blush, um, I'm going to tell a joke here from Winston Churchill to make my point. Winston Churchill, I think, is probably the greatest human of the 19th, of the 20th century. Of all the 1900s, he was the most consequential person, that prime minister of Britain who brought the, uh, the Brits through World War II. In a more normal time that wasn't World War II, he was just a guy in Britain, a, a politician arguing against government programs, government largesse, and arguing for people to take care of themselves and not be collectivists. And there was this story that it seems true. Both sides uh, seem that it's uh, not just an, it's not, it's not ap- apocryphal of a story that Winston Churchill went into the restroom with, uh, and, and found that the leader of the opposition party was also in there and that he went to the farthest away urinal and went to the bathroom there. And the British people being prim and proper and can be offended by rudeness, the the other party leader made that a point. He he said it it to the media, he said it to people, that Winston Churchill was so rude in the bathroom. And so Winston Churchill was later asked about this, and he said something to the effect of, well... I know he's with, I think it's called the Labor Party. I know he's with the Labor Party, and anytime they see anything big, they want to nationalize it. Oh, but up, bump. Do you get it? You get it? And this is the case with folks on the left. They want to nationalize, federalize, governmentize absolutely everything. It is their, 
their natural state of being. And so you just do know that this left-wing woman coming out of a left-wing place, Silicon Valley, with Facebook saying they welcome regulation, that one of the natural things you got to recognize is, well, they're, they're just looking for control. They want to control content. Number two, so we know that there's agenda. But then we can ask ourselves, well, just because there's an agenda there doesn't mean that it would be wrong. It just means some people have bad motives. So there's a question here. Does the government have a role in whatever social media is? Remember that it's new. MySpace was only 20 years ago. Facebook is, what, 2003 or 03? So we're talking... It's almost 20 years old. I guess MySpace is probably 25 years old. It is a new thing. And largely, we, we, we have no regulation on it. I tend to like that, but it is new, and so it's worth now with 20 years of data to look back and go, hey, I, this is a new thing someone invented. I wonder if there is some role for government here. I can hear that discussion. At the same time, I, I know that for humankind, the Internet has been one of the greatest developments, certainly has a lot of negatives. It's been one of our biggest challenges. But it's been one of the greatest developments for human flourishing. Not just in the United States, because at this point we use the Internet in large part to entertain ourselves. But when you think about what the Internet did for connectivity and communication all around the planet, the fact that you can, if you want... Venmo cash to a ministry in Africa that really needs something, or Latin America, and you're not doing wire transfers and banks being slow, and you can do it in a moment. The fact that we have been able to use the internet for so much communication, it's just a, it's obviously a net good for humanity. And it's largely been the Wild West. The folks on the left, those who like control, talk about the Wild West pejoratively, that there was no real order. It is, in those, it is in those environments that a lot of good stuff happens, that a lot of innovation happens because there's not a lot of red tape. So I then get a little bit testy about trying to regulate this thing, even this new thing, because I know it's so good because it's so free. And if you make it less free, you will make it less good. You'll make the Internet a less productive place for all of us. So I tend against it. And then I remember... So I'm giving you all of my pros and cons here. In the last two or three years of content, I've come onto this microphone and said, I am ready for heavy regulation of pornography on the internet. We have no real safeguards uh, for, for children's sake. I'm, I'm ready to get the government involved in, I, I wouldn't even mind saying, banning internet pornography. That if you want your smut, you've got to go somewhere and physically purchase it. You can't get it on a platform that's so easily accessible to children. And it ends up being children, for me, that I'm most concerned about on that pornography thing. And it, maybe that's a, a place to start here. A place to start on social media is maybe we should all agree, maybe our, our 12-year-olds don't need to be on TikTok and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Maybe they don't. The kind of toxic environments, as much as toxic gets overused. So, what, and for that matter, we go back to the earlier in the show, it's people are getting some of that main character energy and seeing the world revolve around them from social media. So ultimately, here's my thoughts on the social media thing. I, I know there's an agenda here, so I'm skeptical. I tend towards government control of anything, government regulation of anything, but because the conversation is new, 
we are dealing with something we only have 25 years of data on, I am open to it. And if you have some kind of idea, I would love to hear it at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, or find me, CoreyTruax, on, get this, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And any ideas you want to offer, I am up for as well. When I come back, when we come back, I listened to a debate recently between two smart people about spending, government spending, and uh, I think there's some really good insights for all of us. I want to tell you about it when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you find podcasts. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show. I do want to immediately get into this debate I heard because I think there are some lessons to take from it that are important. But first, I want to acknowledge uh, a message I got from a, a listener, I guess, but also a a friend in previous life. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Keith, if you're out there listening uh, this for this episode, I got a message from him that said, Hey, Corey, just want to let you know I've been listening every week. So first, thank you. Um, and then I, I has a question here I want to get to, but I want to stop really quickly to say this. It, podcasting is this weird world where you can see how many people are listening, but you really don't know who they are. And it blows my mind as more people that I've known in the past or currently know, listen, because there's now, it's it's significant, like we're getting to consistently around 2,000 people. Uh, it's, it's always less than that, but getting getting towards that. So I obviously don't know everybody, but it's, man, it probably is, a, I don't know, 100 people of you listening are personal friends from different, different parts of life. And so I really appreciate you listening. Um, this one gentleman, Mr. Keith here, I uh, was on a basketball team with him in high school. Once saw him sink two free throws with time expired or about to expire to take a game to overtime. It was awesome. Um, but he asked this question. As a teacher, I'm interested in your thoughts about the Bible project, project and its use as a teaching tool. I love the Bible project. If, you don't, if, if you're not on YouTube watching Bible project videos, I highly recommend it especially just their their word studies, their book studies. If you find Bible study hard, you find it tedious or boring, get the Bible Project on YouTube. Everything is free. Listen, I think there's a couple things that I probably disagree with them on. They haven't been clear yet. It's actually one of their, I think one of their best strategies is being super vague about some doctrinal stuff because it can attract everybody when you're really vague. And for full disclosure, they definitely don't hold to any kind of historical interpretation of uh, the creation story. They don't hold to a historical interpretation of the Tower of Babel or uh, the flood, the flood narrative. They, they hold specifically to narratives that are not that. They say that that's not the way to interpret Genesis. Even if you don't like that, the, I cannot recommend the Bible Project to you enough for some Bible knowledge. Really brilliant, really entertaining, well-illustrated. And I think, especially in group settings, using this for for kids, for groups, for discussion, I, I, I highly recommend it. And so uh, thanks, uh, Mr. Keith, for the, uh, for, the, uh, for, the, for the Facebook message is what that was. And you can also contact the show like he did on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax, or Corey Truax Show at gmail.com. I only have about 10 minutes, and I want to get through this debate I listen to a lot of Oxford-style debates. That's the, for, the formal way to do debates. I listen to zero cable news because those aren't debates. That's just screaming at each other with two, usually two vapid people, utterly thoughtless. They do it for four or five minutes, and then they go, all right, we've run out of time. 
Oxford-style debates are long, laborious. The word I'm looking for is deliberative. And I listen to those debates through Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. It's a production of NPR, and you can find the podcast, Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates. Some of those debates are really boring, and you will look at the title and go, I have no interest in this whatsoever. And that's cool. Don't listen. But I recently listened to a debate on Intelligence Squared U.S. that had this proposition. So it was just yes or no to this question. Congress should spend trillions on the Build Back Better plan. Congress should spend trillions on the Build Back Better plan. And it was two left-of-center people, two liberals, especially economically, but one with just a little bit of common sense, debating whether or not we should spend a bunch of money we don't have. Now, I've already done this on the show last week. Here's what's not important in this discussion. What's not really important is what people think on this matter. I found this debate illustrative on exploring how people think. And I want us to be able to identify that together. So here is a couple here are a couple thoughts from that debate, and I highly encourage listening to it. I'd love your reaction as well. One, the debate, whether they said it this way or not, ended up being about this question. Should there be a social safety net from governments, or should government help be a way of life. I think there's even some, some, biblical support, if you wanted to try to go there, for saying a, a government has plenty of space if they want to, to uh, set up safeguards so that poverty, long-term poverty cannot befall somebody. That long-term homelessness, if someone will take the minimum of effort, won't have to live that way. That in an old person's of final years, they aren't just left to die in their home alone, that there's some kind of social safety net for orphans. Like there's, there, there is some argument to say governments might want to take that on, a social safety net. And the, the one liberal arguing in this took that, took that position. There is a place for government to have a fairly large social safety net to take care of older people and those who truly can't tear them, take care of themselves in poverty or long-term unemployed in certain economic conditions. And then there was the other person that took the position the government should be involved in absolutely everything. You are of middle class, upper middle class, the government should be heavily involved in all the parts of your life. It's housing, medical care, your parenting, what education your kids get, not just the high school level, but on into college and what they get taught at K-3, that there is just no place that the government's tentacles should not reach in and affect your life. And those were the two debates. There was never my position, which is more, more libertarian, which is there's not really a role for the government in any of these things. The government's role is to punish evil, to, uh, to, to protect us from foreign invaders, um, and to ensure justice, that, none of, that when one of us does the wrong thing to the other, that there is some kind of recompense for that. So here's what I noticed, though. Now, that's the, I guess that is a little bit of what people think, but again, the how. I heard this one liberal guy make such incredibly astute, academic, intelligent, articulate arguments. So I'll give you just two. He talked about the, the real inflation that spending trillions of dollars would, uh, would do, or would cause. We already have an inflation problem. You're, you're all feeling it, where stuff costs more than it used to. And then he starts talking about how, yeah, well, if we start giving money away for child care, 
That puts more money in the, po- in the pockets of families. That's one. When we're doing this child tax credit, when people just have money deposited to them, when we increase the earned income tax credit so people are just getting money from the government, that will cause demand. More people will then try to go on vacation and putting a strain on the already strained gas system. People will want to buy cars, and right now we already have a shortage there. People will want to buy technology, and we already have a shortage in the chips that are being manufactured. You will cause this problem we already have of too, too many dollars chasing after not enough supply of products, and you're going to really jack up prices. Inflation will balloon under this policy because we have too much demand right now and not enough supply And you would just be pumping dollars not into banks or corporations. You'd be pumping dollars directly into people's pockets, and people spend money. You're going to cause a problem. He made another astute argument about how when you tax, when you in part pay for this by taxing corporations, that historically, not just the prediction, historically what happens is you depress wages. That we have, I think we do have a problem in the country with. Uh, our, our wages should be higher. They've not kept up with inflation. And one of the ways companies choose not to pass along their cost to consumer is they pass along their cost to their employees. So taxes go up on a corporation. They've got to respond to that in some way. One of their options to now pay their new taxes is to raise prices. And that means us, the consumer, we're going to pay the tax for them because we're going to pay more for the product that they sell. But if they find themselves to be in a competitive environment and they're really hesitant to raise their prices for their product, well, one of the ways you could do that is the next time raises were coming around and the people who would get 5% raises, well, they just get three. The people who would get 3% raises get 1% raises. You keep your your wages uh, static so as to save the money that you need to pay the new taxes. And we, so, again, we have the problem. It's true. We have a wage problem. Our, our wages are depressed. We need higher wage growth. We need wage growth to happen more quickly. And again, historically, this happens every time when you tax corporations. I'll give you just those two arguments. Really astute, well-grounded in facts, and, the, and the, the science that is economics. It's a soft science, but it's a science in the last. And I'm, I'm only barely exaggerating here. But the response from the other guy was, yeah, but I'm sad. But like, there's families that have a kid and it costs a lot to get the kid taken care of and it makes me sad. And there's parents that stress out a lot about paying for all the stuff that their kids need and it makes me sad. Um, and then there's some people that work a lot or work some and then they earn some money and it's not enough money and it makes me sad. So I think we should give all this money away. And you want you say back, okay, so I heard what you said. Now, here's all this factual stuff I just said to you. Do, do you want to think through that again? No, I'm just super sad. Okay, well, we're going to depress wages. You want wages to go up for people. You want them to make more money. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, that'd make me really happy. Okay, well, if you raise taxes on these companies, you're actually going to depress wages. Yeah, but okay, I'm sad, though, because they don't make enough money. And so, well, excuse, not, excuse me, that's a different sadness. I'm sad because the rich people don't pay enough, so I, we should do it. Okay, well, there's consequences to that. Okay, well, I'm sad, though. And it was about that immature of a discussion. Somebody trying to toss out facts, the other person only responding in their feelings. And that's the how we think thing and the last points I wanted to make today. We've got to be the people that live in objective reality. We don't live in our heads. 
living in our emotions, living in our minds, living in our thoughts is something children get to do. Children get to do it. Adults don't get to. And so when we evaluate policy in government or decision for our families or a career change or something in parenting, we don't evaluate it in how we feel about it. We evaluate it in objective reality. What do we know? What can we predict? Very important here. What does the Bible say? What objective measurements do we have to make any given decision? Because if you live in your feelings, your feelings will lie to you from time to time. Some of you, I learned this recently, some folks are very much rooted in the past. They make decisions based on what's happened previously. Now, what's happened previously doesn't actually have any bearing on what's about to happen, but their feelings live in the past. They make their decisions there. Other people are future-focused, and they have some fantasies they've made up, and then they make decisions based on fantasy or, on fantasy, or they make a lack of decision in the moment based on some fantasy that they have out there, and it ends up messing things up. They're living in the past or they're living in the future. The one thing they're not living in is objective reality right now in this moment. And this one guy on this debate, he was so illustrative of that. Just living in a fantasy that might want to exist in the future, rooting himself in an injustice of the past and just swimming in the feelings that he has about things. And we just can't be those people. I know that's hard for some folks because some folks are super emotional. It's a, you know, it's, it's not a, a setting that I have pretty, fairly, uh, it's not a strong setting in my brain. My, my emotional state is quite, I am dispassionate mostly about things. And I know others will struggle with that. Unlike, unlike me, like I don't struggle with that, but I am, I am saying that's part of the call here. Part of the call is objective reality is part of the Christian worldview. We believe there's an objective world, the one that we're imagining or the one in the past that we think happened or the one in our head isn't real. And so as we look out at the world and make decisions in our politics, in our families, in our lives, the thing to do is figure out what objective reality is and then bend to it. Court Your Show listeners, thanks for giving us time every week. I'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.